0: Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay
1: FM. It's brought to you this week by Blue Apron. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell. And of course, I'm joined, as always, by my co host, who you just heard at the beginning, Stephen Hackett. Hello.
0: Hey. No one would know this except that I'm going to mention it. We got that backwards. Even episodes are mine. I messed up. Oh, no. You want to do that again? No, we're going to plow forward, All my right. friend. There's a lot to talk about today. Welcome
1: to lift. No, sorry. Wait, <laughs> no. what? <huh>? No! <laughs> There's
0: so much to talk about. Let's talk about uh, everyone's favorite flying rock, or is it two flying rocks? 2014 MU69. Woo. This is New Horizons' uh, target in the Kuiper Belt. It will see it, uh, what is it, New Year's Day 2019. So New Horizon, of course, blasted by a Pluto. It's still... Still out there, still traveling, and this is uh, its next target. It's some 4 billion miles from Earth, which is just really mind-blowing, way out in the Kuiper belt. And the news is that this object may be a lot more interesting than than initially thought. Uh, Recently, it passed in front of a distant star. So we've talked a ton about this, about exoplanets, right? When something travels in front of a star, in front of a light source, you can learn about it. And the shape that is seen is really strange. It's either like a skinny football or it may even be like two objects closely rotating around a center locked to each other's gravity. It could be you know, something more than just one flying rock. It could be something even stranger.
1: Yeah, there's a really good, really good piece uh, by Kenneth Chang in the New York Times that details sort of the trying to observe this thing. Because keep in mind, this object is at most 20 miles wide. Right, it is a very small object, and it's very far away. Four billion, you said miles away, a billion miles beyond Pluto, it's very far away. And so what they have to do is there are they, they, they have basically they know where what its orbit is, although not necessarily super exact, but close. And so they have this ability to map out when it might be passing in front of a background star. And like that is one of the only ways that they can do kind of some measurements on it and get a little bit more precision is, you know, how how quickly does it pass the background star and and cover it up? And so they tried a a few times to see this occultation and uh, it it took until the uh, I think there were three that happened in between June 3rd and July 17th. And the third one, they got it. Um, and there is another occultation coming up that they might try to get but it's a very hard thing and in the end what you get in and there's a thing in the New York Times about it where where uh, there's an animated gif where they basically say uh hey here's a star and then it blinks a- a- away and then it comes back like that's it that's 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 it so um it's it's very hard but the end result is this thought about like it could be two objects it could be like shaped like a really like long uh, like a football or something american football you know kind of weird shaped uh it's not just like a potato it's it's something a little bit different and it was the one that they picked for new horizons that was kind of in the flight path of new horizons and i think they're going to be able to tighten up the um the flight plan, because one of the things that they've gotten out of this, I believe, is some uh, a little more specificity about exactly where it is, so they can kind of steer a little bit and make sure that they uh, they can fly by it as as close as possible. And then another thing they got is it was not like a fuzzy occultation, so they think that there's not like a debris cloud around it, which is also important since they're going to be flying New Horizons past it. Exciting
0: stuff, man! It, it's you know it's the first time we've seen a Kuiper Belt object up close, and so. It may just be a floating chunk of rock that's not very big, but it's a it's a new type of exploration in our solar system, which is exciting.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, not very big thirty kilometers. There's some uh, metric for those out there. We had somebody complain <laughs> that we don't use we, we don't do metric, which we don't, but uh, we'll try when we when we can. I, I can't I can't do four billion miles from Earth off the top of my head in kilometers. How, how about this in metric? It's really far. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really far away. Yeah. yeah. Good job.
0: That's Thanks. that's what they wanted. Uh, I didn't see this until I opened the document. What is going on with the SLS
1: paint job? So the Space Launch System, the the uh, you know our our next generation giant rocket to send people into space somewhere. <laughs> We're going to send them somewhere. Well, into space.
0: Yeah, then they can figure yeah. it
1: out from there. They can they can put it together <laughs> from there. That's how that works. Really nice uh, story that posted uh, last week. At the Planetary Society by Jason Davis about this. New paint job. That's what you want on your rocket is a flashy paint job. Actually, it reminds me of the space shuttle paint job story, except this this time it was only in mock-ups. It, it didn't actually get to reality. Uh, originally it was like, here's a big white rocket like the Saturn V or the or the first space shuttle launches. Isn't that awesome? Uh, and at one point I think there were like swooshes down the side that were like literally just a NASA artist put them in to make it look cool, I think, because swooshes are cool. Uh, but now that they've gotten to like the reason, like why you, the the f- the function instead of the form, basically. So now what it looks like is the the center section looks a lot like the space shuttle's main tank. It's this orangey brown thing. Um, and the, bro- the boosters are white, but they've got these kind of black and white check squares that go up the side of each of them. Mm-hmm. And this is a, I learned a new word in reading this, which is fiducial. Fiducial markers are a thing that is used to help in the analysis of what you're seeing in photos. A fiducial ma- marker, a good example would be, you know, if you take a picture of something really small and you put like a ruler in the picture next to it so people could get an idea of scale, if that is a fiducial marker. So here, when they've got high-speed cameras and long-range cameras taking pictures of like this, the solid rocket booster separation on the launch of the first test mission and all of that, apparently the black and white checks, and there's some stuck to the, 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 the main section as well, these all function to help with scale and location and help the photographic analysis understand where exactly things are are moving and changing. So it's got it's got function, it, you know, it doesn't look I mean it looks a little like a checker flag that I think the, the Jason Davis's piece says it's like something you could see at NASCAR or something like that. It's a little <laughs> bit a little bit like that, but that's why it's there is is to act in as helpful analysis. I will also say I highly recommend this Jason Davis story because it also has an animation in it. And its animation shows you one of the one of the challenges when you're doing this analysis is they're looking at high speed cameras and he says just as a bit of an side for trivia, did you know that the solid rocket boosters on the shuttle pulsed at, at seven hertz, um, and that the, uh, I think it's seven hertz, and, and uh, that the, the SLS solid rocket boosters will pulse a little bit faster, but they also also pulse, and he's got this animation that shows the takeoff of the space shuttle on a very high-speed camera, and what you see is it doesn't go smoothly up. It goes in stair steps. It goes boom, boop, 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 and keeps going up. And that's because the solid rocket boosters are actually, are actually pulsing seven times a second, um, which is cr- crazy. Like, that is, mm-hmm. but, it, but it's true. So right at the very beginning, the space shuttle goes, you know, does stair step up. And then eventually, you know, it's going fast enough that the that the pulses don't don't make it stair step anymore. They just keep keep on increasing the volume. But uh, that's pretty cool. So there's a lot that goes into uh, these high speed imaging things that they're using to find out. Like as as we know from Columbia, the high speed imaging stuff um, is what they were able to go through later and figure out the the ice strike on the panel that ended up causing the 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 mission to fail on re-entry obviously they did a a bunch of imaging although it wasn't as good for challenger and then every post columbia shuttle mission they had lots of cameras everywhere so the idea here is you're flying a test mission and even the second one's going to have this stuff too with the one with people on it like you want to be able to have analysis not just in case things go horribly wrong but also because the like like uh, jason davis says in this piece when the solid rocket boosters separate they kind of can go not anywhere but they are not like they don't they don't go in one specific trajectory, there's some chaos involved in where they go. And so it's, you know, it's helpful for every one of these launches to get the most precise measurements you can about what happens at every step of the way. It helps with safety. It helps with the understanding of how the spacecraft flies. So anyway, it's an interesting example of, you know, NASA does like its marketing, but it likes its science and its safety more. And that's why you have fiducial markers on So, when you see when we talk about in like a million years when they finally launch one of these things um, <laughs> we can talk about it. that's you'll now you know why it's got like a checker flag going down the side. This is why
0: yeah that's super cool yeah uh, i learned I learned a lot from that that gif really is incredible it's just like boop
1: boop here, yeah. here we go we're going right. we're going right. and now it's, it's super slow right because those pulses are actually having seven seven times a second but uh at the beginning yeah it's it really counterintuitive but that's that's mm-hmm. why they take the super high speed film of the of the launches
0: i wanted to make a couple of quick programming notes oh yes our next our next episode will be out Uh, uh, next week that's off cycle for us, but we wanted to have our Eclipse show out as soon as we can. So uh, the plan is for Jason and I to have a phone call at some point uh, after the Eclipse and we'll record that and put it out as sort of a a fun special episode. And then we'll be back on September 12th on our regularly
1: fortnightly schedule. So we're we're doing the same number of episodes. The next one is just a week early. Right. So, so I guess the, the big programming note here is Mm -hmm. next week's the Eclipse (laughs) you should you should watch it don't look directly at the sun get some eclipse glasses if you know it may be too late for you to make plans to go to the area of totality but uh if you're you know if you're in that band you should go outside and uh check it out uh but it is just a reminder. Look for your maybe local science center or look online. There'll be lots of uh, places streaming views of the eclipse. And we will be at our designated eclipse sites. And then the next day or maybe that night, who knows how we're going to do it. We'll figure it out. But we're going we're gonna to put together an episode. Um, and so our next episode will be kind of our eclipse stories. And that'll be a fun, special bonus episode. Um, That's not a bonus. That'll be the next episode. And then we'll take three weeks off, um, and we'll be back on our regular schedule for September 12th.
0: We are in August, and August does mark membership month here at Relay FM. You can support a bunch of shows. You can support Liftoff by going to Relay.fm slash Liftoff and signing up to be a member. They start at just 5 bucks a month. You get access to tons of fun stuff, behind-the-scenes newsletter, previews of upcoming shows and demos of ideas we're working on. I host a members-only podcast where I pick two hosts who don't work together to talk about a big topic each month, and then you also get a feed for all bonus episodes, so every show on Relay does bonus episodes uh, in August and early September, so we're doing one. We're going to watch the movie Contact, which I have actually never seen, so it'll be my first time viewing, and uh, Jason and wow. I, we're, you and I are going to talk about that. That episode comes out, uh, I think, maybe even early September. We're one of the last ones, but... Any show on Relay you enjoy, uh, almost everyone is doing extra content during this month. So if you're not a member, we'd love to have your support, Relay.fm slash liftoff or slash membership. You can go support a bunch of different shows. And, uh, thanks in advance. It means, it means the world to us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a, uh, it's a, a fun thing to do you you get all the specials so you get last year's specials you get all the other show specials there's a lot of fun stuff so you can listen if you aren't a member already you can you can subscribe today and you can dig through the feed and find our Apollo 13 episode that we did last year and then we will do contact this year which is you know it's fiction but based on a Carl Sagan book and it is uh, it, there's a lot of good stuff in it so I'm we'll taking talk a about note that not a documentary bonus. interesting not uh, well you'll yeah you'll get you'll figure out wh- how, why because there's a uh, you know no, you know no when spoiler, we say there's no, probably not no, it's probably not aliens spoils. No. what if there were what if it was aliens Stephen? what
0: then what would I happen we'll find out together
1: you already know i found out yeah <laughs> hmm. i i do know yeah. you tell us about our sponsor this week Oh, sure. This episode of Liftoff brought to you by our friends at Blue Apron, the number one recipe delivery service. It's got the freshest ingredients. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone while supporting a more sustainable food system. They set high standards for their ingredients. They're building a community of home chefs like me and my wife and my kids because we make two Blue Apron meals every week because uh, we can and they taste good. And uh, our our home uh, meal Repertoire is uh, a lot less boring than it used to be. $10, less than $10 per meal is what you pay for Blue Apron to deliver seasonal recipes fresh, high-quality ingredients so that you can make these amazing meals at home in 40 minutes or less. There's a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card, pre-portioned ingredients. You can reuse the recipe card later, buy your own ingredients, remake your favorite recipes, uh, which we do all the time now. And there's uh, no food waste or very little food waste because you get the pre-portioned ingredients. So you don't don't have to buy like a big jar of something and then use one teaspoon of it, which is uh, super wasteful. Uh, There's a freshness guarantee as well. Every ingredient in the box will be ready to cook or they will make it right. I have, uh, that happened to me one time where we had a weird shipping failure and immediately Blue Apron was like, okay, we they took care of it. I think they comped us for the week and we went to the store and bought that ingredient and made the meal anyway and it was great. So they are super easy to deal with in that way. Among the meals that you might cook, Think of uh, basil pesto chicken with summer vegetable panzanella, or perhaps sautéed shrimp and green beans with globe tomatoes, spinach, and orzo pasta, or, and this is waiting for me in my refrigerator right now, meatball pizza, celebrating the NASA meatball logo with fresh mozzarella cheese. And let me tell you that fresh mozzarella cheese. Oh my God. It's so good. I'm not sure how good for me it is, but every once in a blue moon, you make the pizza with the fresh mozzarella cheese and you understand why the Italians were brilliant and are. They're probably still brilliant. I don't know. It's just John Syracuse knows what knows what's up with the fresh mozzarella cheese. That's all I'm saying. No weekly commitment. Skip the weeks where the menu doesn't please you. Choose within a week from the, from the uh, different dishes that do please you on their website. Super convenient. You can get three meals free with your first purchase, including free shipping, by going to blueapron.com slash liftoff. You will love the food. You will love making the food at home. It's great. Blueapron.com slash liftoff. Thanks, Blue Apron, for supporting Liftoff. Blue Apron,
0: a better way to cook. All right. So this this week we are getting into part two of bracket undetermined, closed bracket uh, <laughs> episodes on... <laughs> NASA's crewed missions. So this is uh, part two of Project Mercury. Last time we spoke about the origins of the project, about the Mercury 7, the seven astronauts uh, who were selected to be the first Americans in space and all the sometimes awkward testing they had to go through. Really sort of uh, uncomfortable at times. Today we want to talk about the flight hardware and about the suborbital missions that took place in the, the opening of the 1960s. So we mentioned the two rockets last time, uh, two different vehicles for the different types of flights. Redstone was used on suborbital flights. It was 83 feet tall. It used, liquid f- it used a liquid-fueled engine that burned alcohol and liquid oxygen. And it only produced about 75,000 pounds of thrust, so it wasn't enough to get the capsule into orbit, just sort of out of the atmosphere, kind of give high five to space, and then come back down a few minutes later. What's interesting about the (laughs) Redstone...
1: I don't know if interesting is the right word. It's, it's a V2 is what's interesting yeah. about it. It's, a, v, it's yeah. a German V2 almost. It's a German war machine <laughs> that they, they sort of spruced up and put a man on top of. Werner von Braun and his scientists were brought to the U.S. after World War II was over. The German engineers who were building uh, rockets for Germany in World War II. And uh, they were basically brought over to help America in the space race because they had... Uh, awesome rocket technology and so the redstone was like first attempt to convert that v2 tech to send people into space yeah it's it's
0: uh, i i've read a bunch about that the decision making that went into into bringing those engineers here and I think still today you could have a healthy debate <laughs>
1: about the, the... I think I think from a Cold War perspective, the idea was those those guys... I mean, this is a little bit like nuclear scientists today. Um, and, and I think I remember at the breakup of the Soviet Union, the nuclear scientist issue too, which is the last thing you really want is somebody who has this uh, knowledge of um, incredibly powerful and potentially dangerous technology um, it, it pushed to the point where they will take any paying work because the the paying work may come from somebody who you don't want to have access to that technology. So right. it, this is, I think, in a, in a Cold War context, this was, look, if we don't hire the Germans, then the Soviet Union will. And, and that's so, bad. you know, uh, so somebody's going to somebody's going to get the German rocket scientists. let it be us. And sure. so that was, you know, I think that was the ultimate motivator. But it, it is a little funny to talk about this Ger- to the, the U.S. part of the space race and say Nazi Germany <laughs> rocket science scientists were involved. Very very much so. Oh, well. Atlas was the other launch vehicle.
0: It was used for orbital flights. Uh, It it may not have been a V2, but it was a repurposed uh, Atlas D, which was the U.S.'s first (laughs) operational intercontinental ballistic missile <laughs> yeah yeah hey we're gonna put you on an ICBM enjoy good luck <laughs> what's interesting about Alice I didn't I didn't know this until doing this research it is a one and a half stage rocket so you have a lower stage and you have an upper stage something like the Falcon 9 right it separates and you have a motor in, in the in the uh, second stage this both stages burned at the same time. And the propulsion from the the upper stage was channeled basically through the middle of the lower stage, so the lower like stage was kind of like a donut, and you had <laughs> and you had the the upper stage firing through the center of it, which it seems very complicated. Yeah, uh, I guess it worked. It did. I mean, mostly it did. Yeah, yeah. that's. I mean, like we talked about last time some of the some of the really sad uh, test flights, but it provided three hundred and forty one thousand pounds of thrust, so enough to get the, the capsule into orbit and to get those men uh, all, the way, all the way high enough to, to fall around the Earth. So Redstone and Atlas, the, the two missions we're going to talk about today are suborbital, so they're, they're both on the Redstone rocket, but it's important, to I think, to know the difference between the two because the Atlas wasn't ready yet, and, and they didn't need all the horsepower of the Atlas to do these initial suborbital flights, so they kind of divided it into two. Whereas, as opposed to now, we talked about the SLS a minute ago. The SLS Block 1 is the first thing that will fly, but they have subsequent versions of that rocket that will become more powerful. It's sort of the same right. idea here, except it's different vehicles. But uh, even the SLS, what we see fly in 2018, 19, 20, you know, could be different by the time 2025 or 2030 rolls around. So at the top of these uh, repurposed weapons is the tiny Mercury capsule. Uh, It was 10.8 feet long and 6 feet wide. That's 3.3 meters by 1.8 meters. If you're you're fast at math, that gives you 100 cubic feet of habitable volume. It is basically like crawling inside of a locker. (laughs) It is super tiny. There's a a photo in the show notes
1: of some technicians working on it. It is. I think when you showed me this photo, my my response to you was that it's it, it's monkey sized. Like mm-hmm. it is. It, it, it reads like. Um Wait, we built this thing for a monkey. You want to put a guy in here? <laughs> like that's what it reads like to me. That yeah. No, 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 no. People aren't going to fit in this thing. And that goes back to what we said last time about why they had specific like height requirements and not the tall kind. The you must be shorter than this sign to ride this ride kind of requirements because it's super tiny. That's uh, I'm going to metric this one too. 2.8 cubic meters of volume. It is incredibly small. Mhm. And inside there you had 120 controls, 55
0: electrical switches, 30 fuses, and 35 levers. Uh, there was not a computer on board, though. The capsule had to rely on computation for reentry on the ground and then send up via the radio. Uh, that was done on IBM 701, and uh, we have we talked about in episode 48 about Hidden Figures, the, the film, and that movie kind of takes place before the stuff into the transition of using human computers to the to the ibm mainframes but uh the Mm -hmm. mercury couldn't think on its own it had to be told what to do uh, from the ground
1: the so let's let's break down some of the other parts of this the the heat shield for the capsule was at the wide end and it was this aluminum honeycomb should I convert that to a metric? Aluminium? Thank <laughs> uh, and then cover it with fiberglass, like layers and layers of fiberglass. It's not at all like um, the thermal system that we, uh, you might remember from the space shuttle, that is a uh, uh, heat tiles kind of thing, right. ceramic tiles. These are um, metal and fiberglass heat shields. And then between the heat shield and the capsule is a landing skirt that is deployed by kind of a Letting the heat shield down before before you land, you you uh, did it pop off or did it just get dropped? I think it down? just gets kind of dropped down some, and then the skirt yeah. kind of comes out and it inflates It help
0: keeps it, the thing afloat in the ocean.
1: Yeah, and uh, so strapped to all this is something called the retro pack, which is three rockets that are deployed to break the spacecraft during reentry. In the center of this package, um, there's three minor rockets for separating the spacecraft from the launch vehicle at orbital insertion. So you get the idea of this is your um, this is your retro rockets that you fire at the end to descend uh, and and end the mission, and then uh, those get popped off by. Again, I, I, I'm not 100% sure if this was the case in Mercury, although it was in later missions by like pyros, which are basically like little tiny explosive charges that would that would sever the straps mm-hmm. that held the package to the, to the ship. So once the retro pack is no longer needed, you've done your re- retro burn, you fired it, you pop those off and they get out of the way so that you've got your heat shield ready for uh, reentry. At least that's the idea is to drop it off and so it doesn't get in the way of the heat shield. Now, it might not... You, you might choose for some reason this is foreshadowing not to pop off the retro pack <laughs> but um, but you're supposed to right and then at the up, up at the other end of the capsule the narrow end there's this recovery system which is three parachutes so again you're're you're, you're going to all of these American missions are splashdown plan missions not going back to land you're going into the ocean and they had three parachutes there's a drogue that stabilizes and then there are two main chutes there's a primary and a backup always good to have a backup when you're talking about parachutes and at the very end is the launch escape system and this is the idea that if you're sitting on top of a rocket and something goes wrong um it's basically a tower and three rockets and if the big rocket below you is failing in some way they fire and they pull the capsule off and to the side and and you get out of there and then return and land back down um and uh, yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the outside of Mercury.
0: So inside the tiny capsule, the astronaut was strapped into a form-fitted seat. So basically, they made fiberglass molds, and some of the articles call it like a like a couch almost, although it's not that wide. But the idea is basically your entire body is supported by this. You, if you are, if you think about the vehicle at launch, the astronaut would be on his back looking straight up Uh, so the heat shield is behind his back, kind of at his back Uh, at the left hand was a manual abort switch for launch so it's uh, about that um, launch escape system that's what would fire that there were pressurized suits inside the capsule as a protection against uh, depressurization uh, and the ability to keep cool so that they ran water through those, those suits to help keep the astronauts cool but the astronauts normally flew with their visors up, which meant the suit cannot be pressurized, cannot be inflated. So if basically the idea is something bad happens, put your visor down and and the suit would, would inflate. However, the bottom and side panels where the most vital controls were could be seen with the visor down so that they, th- they thought through some of that stuff. Underneath the seat, you had cooling, CO2 scrubbers, and urine collection, so kind of tucked underneath. Again, there's not much room here, right? So everything is as compact and as small as it can be. Right.
1: There's no flotation device under
0: the sea. No, 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 there's not. Uh, We're going to talk about that in a minute, though. Once in orbit, (laughs) the (laughs) spacecraft could be rotated in three directions. So along its axis, which is called roll, left or right from the astronaut's point of view, which is called yaw, and then up or down, which is known as pitch. So they had very basic controls. And for orientation, the pilot could look through the window in front of him or from a screen connected to a periscope, which could be turned 360 degrees. The visibility in in the Mercury capsule Especially the early ones was was pretty poor, and you know we spoke about this last week. But these guys were test pilots, and there was a lot of frustration and a lot of tension between them and NASA and the contractors about how much control they could have over the capsule. Things like window placement uh, were were done at the at the request of the astronauts, and again that changed over time a little
1: bit as as the capsules got more mature. But yeah, there's a great scene in the right stuff where. Uh I mentioned, you know, made for a monkey earlier. There is that moment where in the right stuff where the astronauts basically revolt and say, Look, if you're gonna have trained pilots in this thing, we need controls, we need a window to look out. Otherwise we really we literally are just monkeys in here. And um and those uh requests were listened to. And so there is there are controls and there was a window put in for them.
0: Mm-hmm. But still, very basic. When you think about something like Apollo, oh, yeah. that we're going to get there, get there later. Um. So the spacecraft could be controlled basically in three ways: remotely from the ground, if it was if it was in contact with a ground station, automatically guided by onboard instruments. Again, there's not a computer on board, but things could kind of could be programmed in advance, or again manually by the astronaut who could override the two other methods. So if if ground control or or something was acting up they could take manual control over the capsule if they felt like it was necessary it's good just
1: in case you never know yeah all right should we break down some uh, some missions here yeah yeah, yeah. let's talk uh let's, t- tell me about freedom seven all right so this is freedom seven is the capsule it is uh, so okay let me stop for a second and say i question i mean <laughs> the branding of these missions, these is not how NASA ended up really branding missions later. Yeah. So everything is seven because of these seven Mercury astronauts. Right. So there's no Freedom One or Freedom Five. <laughs> right. It's it's just Freedom Seven. There's just the one, and then the next one will have a different name, American themed name ending in a seven. Although I guess they did number the rockets, so this is Mercury Redstone 3. Right, 1 and 2 uh, were, freedom...
0: were tests.
1: Yeah, yeah, that went really well. Um, <laughs> so Freedom Freedom 7 um, is the capsule on top of Mercury Redstone 3. And this is May 5th, 1961. This is Alan Shepard. And it is the first Mercury flight with a person on board. We could say crewed or manned, but... Uh, It was a box, and only one person fit inside, and that was Alan Shepard. So the crew was one, and it was Alan Shepard. Uh, This was the first American to go into space, but it is—and you may be saying to yourself, well, wait a second. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know who Alan Shepard was. But Alan Shepard is not remembered like John Glenn is. Yeah. And certainly not like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Right. And— one of the reasons, I mean, on one level that's really unfair. I mean, he is not Yuri Gagarin who was the first person in space, but he's the first American in space. He, he um, also went on Apollo, you know, he, he deserves our respect, but this mission, when you hear about it, it's like, Oh, um, it was an up and down. It was a, it was super dangerous. I'm not trying to belittle it. I'm just trying to reasons why we don't remember him. And we remember John Glenn or, uh, or, or, uh, you know, th- this is this is maybe why. So 15 minutes is how long the flight was. The whole idea was, can we do this? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, you know, it was, can we put a person in here uh, and really put them in here with the high G-forces when it launches and then do reentry and bring him back? And so this is test pilot stuff. This is super dangerous. Like they had done tests before, but th- it's one thing to test and it's another thing to actually see it work with a person and not just, well, the tests suggest that it will work with a person. (laughs) So, so, um, so freedom seven reached an altitude of 101.2 nautical miles, which is 187.5 kilometers and traveled downrange from Florida about 263 nautical miles or 487 kilometers. So up and down and, and, and obviously out into the ocean from Florida, um, 45 million people watched it on television, which was, it was, uh, the launch was delayed because of weather. Um, the, I think this is also a, uh, a, a right stuff moment, which is that it got delayed so long that, um, he, at one point, I think, asked if uh, they were going to launch it or not because he really had to go to the bathroom, and they finally just told him to just go in his suit, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which which I think there was some concern about whether he might short some stuff out right. <laughs> in the suit, yeah. but it was it ended up being fine. Um, he tested all the manual controls. It was only, you know, it, it was a very short flight, but the, all the manual controls worked. Um The secondary objective was to check check out the window, basically. Can you make observations of the ground? And he said, you know, yes, he could see coastlines, he could see islands, he could see lakes, he could could see stuff down on the ground. And uh, he did get, even though he's not as remembered as some of the other astronauts today, he did get a ticker tape parade in Washington and another one in New York. And another one in Los Angeles. He must have been sick of ticker tape. It's a, it's, it's a lot of waving. Your arms are going to get tired. A lot, a lot of sitting on the back of a convertible waving at people. Um, he got a medal from John F. Kennedy and was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross as well. And Freedom 7 was displayed in the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis until 2012. And now it is in the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston. And it was... Uh, uh, it's It's... It's uh, stewarded by the Smithsonian, but has been de- uh, displayed in all sorts of interesting places. So now, if you would like to see Freedom 7, go to the JFK Library in Boston. So, just a, a few months le- later, July 21st, 1961,
0: Gus Grissom uh, climbs inside the Liberty Bell 7 Mercury what? capsule. It's
1: not. It's not Freedom 8? No. It's
0: Liberty Bell 7? Nope. It's, uh, they all end in 7. Uh. This is on Mercury Redstone 4. It's the last Redstone launch. And the mission goals were very similar. Uh, it's hey, go up, test controls in, yeah, and play it know. again, yeah, yeah. T- test controls in in low gravity, and then come back down. A few minutes later, he. Uh, so I've read a bunch of stuff about this, and it's kind of hard to say exactly what happened. But it seems like he Grissom ended up being like reluctant to return to the controls after the time of making observations out the window, which is totally understandable. He did report that the controls felt sluggish compared to the simulators that they had trained on. So he sort of overcorrected the capsule several times. But, you know, as a test pilot would do, eventually got the hang of it, making thorough notes for the engineers on the ground of of what he thought could could be improved. The capsule then turns around. So it launches, obviously, nose first and goes up. And as it begins to descend, it it would turn around so the heat shield would be in front. Uh, It makes that turn. And then dips uh, back into the atmosphere, and after slamming into the atmosphere, basically the rest of Mercury Redstone Four Liberty Seven is uh, real historic. <laughs> Up to this point, everything is is nominal, uh, but as he as he reenters and as he comes in for a landing, things get a little hairy.
1: Yeah, it's no longer a replay of Alan Shepard at this point. So the Navy is down there um, getting ready for the splashdown. Uh, they've got the procedure because, you know, it, it's, uh, it doesn't turn into a, a boat when it lands. they they got to have naval, naval vessels there to, to fish the capsule out of the water and fish the astronaut out. There's a helicopter with a grappling hook. Um that basically latches to the top of the capsule and they pick it up. There's a, 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 another helicopter with rescuers. They, they rappel down ropes and pick up Grissom from the, from floating in the ocean. And they, they haul him to safety. This all worked for Alan Shepard. It wasn't a problem. Um, grissom's capsule had an explosive hatch to pop the hatch off Shepard actually had to manually unlatch his door but grissom just had to pull a pin and hit a button and the door pops off thanks to more pyros explosive bolts that are just going to pop the thing off so it's easy opening can basically and um as grissom prepares to detonate the hatch he leans over to grab a survival knife with his hand away from the controls the hatch blows off the capsule rolls. It's in the water already, right? It starts to get, water starts to pour into the capsule. So Grissom jumps out of the craft into the ocean because the last thing you want to do is be in a sinking space capsule that's going down in the no middle doubt. of the ocean. So he pops pops off. Good call. I say, good call. The recovery pilots see this. They grab the capsule um, or, or they try to. Um, the you know Normally, a life raft would have been lowered first, which would let grissom move away from the capsule but he had jumped out before it could be placed so the helicopters were too close together the rescue team couldn't get into position um the the rotor wash from the helicopters is making the surface all choppy grissom is struggling to stay afloat um and and you know during a normal ev- evacuation he would have uh waterproofed a suit closed up all the stuff but he didn't get a chance to do that because he dove out so this is all bad bad th- bad things are happening in the water off of the coast of florida
0: yeah it's it's a scary scene to read about, and it was all, it was all live on TV. But you know, the cameras couldn't see him in the water, so it was all about this helicopter fighting the capsule. Uh, the helicopter ends up being almost pulled into the ocean as the landing gear dips below the surface. The pilot finally cuts the capsule loose. It's a very valuable piece of equipment. They they need the information out of it. They need the notes out of it, and it is cut loose by the pilot, so so he doesn't lose two aircraft instead of one, and you know put uh, more lives in danger. So it sinks three miles below. This did allow the rescue chopper to come in, right? So the the one attached to the capsule can get out of the way. The rescue uh, helicopter can come in and pluck Grissom from the the rolling sea, but. Even then he's he's really struggling his his suit is taking on water the 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 wake of the helicopter blades is really churning the water up I mean he really from everything I read he almost drowned he he was super close to it they pluck him out of the water uh, they bring him back to the ship. The helicopter that's supposed to have a capsule on the other end of its cable uh, makes it back safely as well. thankfully no one was killed uh, no one was injured but that started a firestorm of of debate and investigation around what happened in that capsule many claimed that he had panicked or that he had blown the hatch early uh you know before he was before the life raft was in place before he was ready it's um it, it's known now after investigation that the, the hatch had some sort of failure, some sort of electrical failure that, that made it blow early. It's not really possible yeah. that he would have he would have hit the plunger accidentally. The way the button was built, he couldn't have like turned and bumped it with his arm. It had to be a very specific movement to engage it. And uh, so the, the other Mercury 7 were behind him, and uh, Sharrab aboard the Sigma 7 a year later would – Try to clear Grissom's name, so when you hit that plunger you would you would get bruising and sometimes even like lacerations on the back of your hand from the charge and mm. Grissom didn't have any of that in his checkup you know once uh, once aboard the ship, so there was evidence missing that he had actually hit the button himself that something made it trigger uh Shiraz proved that would happen uh in an attempt to clear his name, and eventually his his name was cleared. It was concluded that uh, faulty wiring had caused that the hatch to blow prematurely, and he would go on to pilot Gemini 3, which is the first crew Gemini mission, as well as be named the first Apollo crew, but of course was tragically killed in the Apollo 1 pad fire.
1: So yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things that I think Tom Wolfe and the right stuff kind of, uh, and the film especially, kind of perpetuated this thought that maybe Grissom panicked and maybe he was the the architect of this, this uh, thing. But all investigations suggest that that's just not that's just not true. Right. That may be an interesting quirky story to tell, but that's not um, actually what Gus Grissom, you know, was about. That that didn't that didn't happen. Yeah. So. So yeah. So he um, and we never saw Liberty Bell Seven again. It just sent it to the depths where it remains to this day. Wait a second. That's not true. Not true at all. It was recovered in 1999. Yeah, they cleaned it up. Um, they, they pu- pulled it off the, the floor as uh, salvage, basically cleaned it up, took it apart and put it back together again and kind of cleaned it up. And then it toured around in the early two thousands. And today it's on loan to the children's museum of Indianapolis. So if you're in Indiana or near Indiana and would like to see Liberty Bell seven, you can go to the children's museum of Indianapolis and it's there. There's such a great use for it.
0: Uh, i really, I like that
1: it's in the children's museum.
0: That makes me happy. Yeah.
1: It's cool. They have a whole uh, Spaceship Earth exhibit that has uh, beyond Spaceship Earth. It's got a bunch of, uh, it's got some ISS-related stuff. It's got an Astronaut Wall of Fame. Uh, It's got a planetarium. And it's got Liberty Bell 7. Cool. So uh, I think that does it for this week. Yeah, I think so. We got more 7s. Yes. More 7s are coming, lucky 7s, including a very special mission where Mercury, Atlas 7, and Aurora 7 go together together lucky sevens. But uh that that will have to remain uh in our in our uh, our our list mm-hmm. for next t- time or time after next. So we'll get to that uh, with episode 55 of Lift Off because of course our next episode will be uh Tales of the Great North American Eclipse of 2017 which we will do right after the eclipse which is next week, which I can't believe. I know. We've been talking about it forever. If you want to
0: find show notes for this week's episode, you can do so at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 53. You can get in touch with us on that page. There's an email link where you can find us on Twitter. Jason is at JSnell, and you can find me there as ISMH. And until our, our next episode, just a week away, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios.